Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Denise Petrovs. Dennis is a director at Cocktail Embassy, an award-winning cocktail bar and club in Crystal Palace, London. Uh, Denise, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hi, well, it's a pleasure to be at the program. It's a pleasure having you as well. Now, Dennis, first and foremost, this podcast is about leadership and effective leadership um, at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? I think um, there's a couple of aspects to me um, as, as to being a leader. First of all, it's, it's being that person that um, people can actually turn to uh, for advice, be it, you know, business-related advice or personal advice and, and uh, just being a, a person who can lead by, uh, by an example. Um, but at the same time, it's also being uh, a leader, not just in the um, business perspective, but in, in personal life as well, being uh, a leader in your family and being able to also differentiate between work life and, and your home life, which obviously took me quite a few years, I think, to, um, to figure out how does that work between um, uh, having a business and a family. And uh, just being, as I said in the beginning, just be, being that person that people can turn to and then effectively you're able to run an organization uh, towards success, being uh, a leader of your family, and, and in, in all of the sense, just being that person that people can uh, turn to for any sort of help, look for advice, and just have that support from my side. Mm. One very interesting point that you raised there um, is, of course, that work-life balance that you talked about there, the importance of balancing work with, um, of course, your family as a leader. And with everybody working from home at the moment, um, in the fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak, um, that's really coming uh, to the fore at the moment, isn't it? Um, well, I just... Uh spoken to my accountant yesterday about this. Um, we were supposed to be doing some financial um, submissions and he, he said to me, he has a, a, a small child, and he said to me, can we schedule a phone call from, from 4 to 5 o'clock because that's when my son sleeps. And it's just interesting to work with some people and, and, and uh, discuss how actually working from, from home affects their lives, because a lot of people back in the day said, I would love to work from home and it would make my life so much easier. But actually, I see a lot of people now saying that it's actually very difficult to uh, be in the same environment in which you work and live and, and trying to differentiate, you know, where is actually your kitchen or where is actually your office and how do you then communicate with, with your family, with, you know, with your wife, with your kids, you know, having your dogs around when you need to make an important phone call. So it's, it's quite uh, you know, difficult for some people in, in this aspect. I would say for me, um, it's, it's quite simple because I, I used to do a lot of work back in the day from my home. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, more or less uh, had experience of uh, working from home. So I actually enjoyed a lot uh, um, from, from the simple fact that I actually get to spend a lot more time being at home, uh, um, and as a simple example, spending more time with with my two dogs. Uh, my wife also works uh, in the same business, so we we get to 
to sort of sit in our kitchen office, uh, a temporary office, and then, you know, yesterday we've been doing payroll and at the same time, sort of just walking the dogs and then coming back to the kitchen and continuing. And then it's, yeah, so I, I, I would say I enjoy it in this sense. It's in, it's really interesting. Um, if you, um, Dennis, were to become, uh, say, uh, the prime minister just for um, a day, would you try and make working from home more of a sort of regular and more normal thing going forward from here? Do you think? I think moving forward, a lot of a lot of companies will look very differently at the whole working pattern. Mm. I, you know, since I started my own business, I I try to go away from the traditional nine to five and obviously my business is very uh, sort of evening nighttime oriented so I've, I've always had a night life sort of a working life uh, uh, and I would always wake up very late so you know it's interesting to to see in the future and I think this is what's going to happen a lot of companies will provide uh, more opportunities for people to work from home and what I personally realize is that a lot of meetings that I always had with, you know, various people, suppliers or, or you know, business uh, companions, a lot of those meetings actually can be done online, via Skype, you know, Facebook and all, all other means of, of sort of a online distance meetings. And uh, I will definitely incorporate a lot more of that in my work moving forward. Uh, and I would think and I would advise both employees and, and owners of companies to, to definitely look into this because I think to, to be able to give the flexibility to, to people, to employees would be an amazing uh, step forward, moving forward. But at the same time, it also comes down to, to the actual person who's willing or will be working from home, having that um, routine and being able to work from home. Because as I mentioned earlier on, I think a lot of people are struggling to work from home because it's difficult for them to um, have a sort of routine that will work for them. What time do they actually start work? What time do they actually finish? When do they go on lunch? Because I think when you work in an office, in a physical office environment, you're a little bit more tied into the actual uh, uh, time of when when your business opens up or when it closes, or for example, if you work in a mm-hmm. in a in a specific call center, it's the times when it's open. Yes, I completely agree. Um, it's a very much um, a removal from the typical office schedule, um, as it were, at the moment, isn't it? And I think this is where um, leaders especially need to kind of not only allow their employees to sort of take a little bit of their own leadership on board and be a little bit more independent, but also just be there to kind of put an arm around the shoulders of their employees and kind of guide them a little bit as well. Definitely, absolutely. I think um, what I've done in the past couple of weeks as well We've, uh, we've always had a, a group chat on Facebook where every single employee of Cocktail Embassy is a member of, and, and we've used that for many, many years. And you know, since this whole situation started, we've, uh, and, and I myself personally, have communicated with them on a more frequent basis, maybe on a more personal level as well, and just sort of sometimes guiding them more on, on well, starting from a simple, don't just, sit all day on a couch, try and do this, try and do that, giving them a bit of guidance. Again, um, just just trying to be that leader for them because a lot of people um, that that work for us 
particularly young people, maybe they didn't have a lot of experience in life to adequately deal with the situation that we are facing today. So that's why I feel that I need to be that figure for some of them to guide and help them in, the, in today's um, environment. Exactly. And you talk about experience there, Dennis, and it's hugely important. If somebody were to um, actually be starting their first day in a leadership role um, around about this time and having to deal with the issues of this crisis, based upon the experience that you've accumulated, what sort of advice would you give to that person? I think, you know, in any business, when, when you start something, you have to have both the experience in the specific field that your business is going to be, but at the same time, life experience. You have to have those very important niche skills, communication skills, leadership skills, delegation skills. I think when I, you know, when I started my own business, I didn't have a lot of them. And I, I would even say for the first couple of years, I wasn't a leader in 100% sense of, of being a leader. And it took me a couple of years to actually get to a point when I realized the difference between having a work-life balance, delegation, not doing everything myself, because that was a very, very big mistake I did. I was trying to uh, micromanage every single task in the bar, do everything myself. And then, you know, in, in today's environment, is actually, first of all, I think, understanding the who is in your team because you know every successful business is actually built uh, on every single member of the team's experience mm-hmm. and skill set and it's actually identifying who is good at what and I call it sort of aces and places and then taking the whole team into account as one living organism and and then utilizing every single person's individual skill set or experience combined with mine and undermine my leadership and then just taking this whole thing and then making it into a successful business. And I think in today's environment, the most important thing that I try to get across to every single one that I communicate is, it's first of all to stay positive because I see a lot of people, you know, it is a difficult time. There's a lot of, especially I think, financial difficulties for a lot of people. And a lot of people are becoming very stressed about it, they're becoming negative uh, about all these things. And uh, it's staying positive. And, and you know, this, this whole situation will end at some point. And it's, it's obviously staying safe, staying positive, having a bright vision of what to do when, when this is going to finish and having a, an action plan of actually what exactly are we going to do you know, when the, for example, when the ban is lifted, when it's going to be safe to actually open bars and restaurants and, and, and welcome all the guests back in the premises. And, you know, are we all prepared to do it? Are people mentally going to be prepared to do it? Because at the same time, as of today, I'm thinking that there might be a situation where a lot of people will, especially in my industry, will become a little bit lazy in the way because you're going to get used to uh, not working, and then you know, in in one day, let's say, some let's just say, you know, in three months' time, it's all going to be safe, and and the prime minister will say, 
okay, you know, it's great now, it's, it's so safe, we have no cases, so it's safe to reopen, and we're all going to go back to work. And, and, you know, life in England, and especially in London, is, is, is very fast-paced, it's quite difficult. And now we're going to be prepared to just jump back into this fast-paced life. So I think that's why at the same time now it's really important to just keep on moving, doing things, you know, maybe doing exercise, you know, even if it's at home, just avoid going out. And then just not um, going into this lazy routine, keep on moving, just to stay prepared for what's ahead of us. Exactly. It's going to be an interesting time uh, once, of course, um, social distancing measures are lifted and things do sort of return to what was the norm before all of this. And if we do look at the future now, uh, Dennis, um, do tell me what you imagine the next year will hold for your business for Cocktail Embassy, but also what you hope to achieve in that time as well. Um, well, before I will explain about this, uh, we, um, so as, as, as a bar, as, as a business, we were about to um, just open a second location and uh, you know we've been working on the project for nearly a year and uh, you know a couple of weeks before uh, before we had the uh, with the prime minister's statement mm. we had a meeting with the with the landlord and, and I expressed my uh, my you know doubts about sort of moving forward at this stage and we just paused the project and. Uh, it was always my ambition to expand the business. You know, Cocktail Embassy has been open for six years now and, you know, it's performing really well. And now is the time to, to expand and open the second and the third bar. And, uh, of course, as soon as the, the, uh, this whole situation is going to finish, we will be looking again at expanding the business, uh, you know, opening more bars. But it'll be a question of, again, just, just, getting everything back together because a lot of work has been put into, you know, starting from working with architects, with builders, with designers, with landlords, with council. We literally, just a month before this, this uh, situation happened, received the premises license from the Bromley Council. So it, it, it's all there. It's just, again, we just need to have all the sort of restrictions lifted to allow us to, to move forward. But I think um, a lot of processes will be different. A lot of uh, a lot of little things might change in the future. I think starting from the simple one. Every every time when I have a meeting these days, and I see a lot of people approach me and, and still, as of today, try to uh, shake my hand. For example, I've met a friend uh, on the street just just going to the pharmacy the other day to pick up some medicine, and and he approached me. We haven't seen each other for for months. And he was about to shake my hand. And I instantly just sort of moved back a step. And I think in future, you know, if we're going to spend three months not having that social contact, having the social distancing, I think this is something that's going to be embedded in well, at least my mindset in the future. But then there's going to be a lot of things that as a business or as, 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 as human beings, we will be definitely doing very, very differently in the future. But at the same time, I think uh, the situation allowed us to actually take a step back and look at what we're doing both as, as people and uh, as, as, as businesses. You know, it gives us a lot of time to actually sit down, evaluate our lives, what's important to us. Because I think for a lot of people, and myself including, uh, for a lot of business owners, life 
mostly is about work. And I, I used to spend a lot of time working, and I, I, I love working. But at the same time now, when I spend a lot more time home, I actually reevaluate what's important in my life, and I will definitely, in future, spend a lot more time at home with my family, uh, uh, trying to find more time to go on holidays. I'm, I'm one of those uh, uh, people that go on holidays sort of once every three years. I've always obviously dreamt of uh, going twice a year. Um, but yeah, definitely having a, a, the time now to sit down and actually think about what's important for us, for the planet, for the business, for our families. And that's what a lot of people, I think, should um, do now. Sit down for a couple of uh, minutes or hours in a day and think about what's important for them. I think it is um, absolutely right what you say there, Dennis. It is a period of uh, reflection and um, it's going to be interesting um, to sort of see how this uh, pans out as well. And I think it would be really good as well in a few months' time to actually have you back on the programme to just look at all of this retrospectively and just see how this period of self-reflection has impacted business and how we have gone forward as a society as well. Um, But for now, Dennis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme and really insightful speaking. And thank you so much for your time today in coming on and sharing your views for the benefit of the listeners as well well thank you very much for having me on the program i'll definitely be delighted to um come back in a couple of months time to share my uh, retrospective vision uh, as, as of today i can just say well thank you very much once again stay safe and be positive Absolutely. It's all we can do at this time. Stay safe and be positive. Coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, 
see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of 
living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the ashes but also the day after you know that open top bus parade around london and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and 
the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job absolutely um and with, with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky 
having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families 
prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh in a good way you know we felt so much uh love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, I'm conscious of the time, we, uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period 
broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.